The Akkad and Koka Report, episode number 97. Welcome to the Akkad and Koka Report, the podcast dedicated to making sense of healthcare. From policy to economics, from evidence-based medicine to ethics, join us as Drs. Michelle Akkad and Anish Koka diagnose and treat the latest epidemic of healthcare absurdities. Hello, everyone, and thank you again for joining us. As a medical discipline, psychiatry has often been the target of severe criticism, particularly over the last 50 to 60 years. Is the criticism valid or not? What is the outlook for the science of mental illness and the practice of psychiatry? Our guest today is George Dawson, who is a staff psychiatrist at the Hazelden Betty Ford Foundation and is also adjunct professor at the Hazelden Betty Ford Graduate School of Addiction Studies. He practices addiction psychiatry in an acute care setting and lectures on the neurobiology, epidemiology, and clinical aspects of addiction. His scholarly interests include biological psychiatry, consciousness studies, and the medical, philosophical, and political aspects of psychiatry. He is also an active blogger on his site called Real Psychiatry, where he writes insightfully on a variety of problems and questions related to psychiatric care. Before we get started, Dr. Koka and I wish to remind you that if you enjoy the show, you can support us with a rating or review on iTunes, or by making a small donation via our website, at akkadandkoka.com slash support. Any show of support is greatly appreciated. And now here's my conversation with Dr. George Dawson. George, thank you for joining me. Pleasure to be here, Michelle. George, I really enjoy reading your um, uh, your posts, your articles on your blog. And um, I want to, um, to discuss with you the topic of psychiatry versus anti-psychiatry. Mm-hmm. And the term anti-psychiatry, you know, is uh, for people who are in the know means something specific. But I think, uh, you know, most of the audience may not be familiar with this. Can you give us an overview of what anti-psychiatry means? And it doesn't mean necessarily one thing, but there's uh, there's a movement or maybe a, a few strands of, of, uh, of thoughts that, uh, you know, call themselves anti-psychiatry. Can you give us a little background on this? Sure. Uh, I think it started as kind of a philosophical movement. And I think the main, the the origins of that philosophical movement were that psychiatry was some type of uh, medical discipline that involved social control. And uh, some of the early philosophers in that area pointed out that, uh, you know, uh, evidence for that would be uh, institutionalization of people and taking their freedom away. And I think that was some of the, the primary early arguments. Uh, but unfortunately, that line of thinking got to be fairly extreme so that uh, the biological basis of psychiatry was really denied and the fact that there are really severe mental disorders uh, that require treatment and, in fact, medical treatment, in some cases, fairly rigorous med- medical treatment, uh, was really kind of uh, not uh, taken into that formulation. Uh, these days, there are, you know, anti-psychiatry in some areas is kind of a cottage in- industry. Uh, basically, uh, you know, there are people out there that profit from uh, anti-psychiatry books. Uh, there are major anti-psychiatry websites. And uh, the interesting thing is you don't really see that with any, any other medical specialty. You know, you don't see the anti-cardiologists out there or the uh, anti-orthopedic surgeons out there, you know. And I think part of the reason for that is not so much the philosophy or the attraction of uh, of the movement, but 
I think it comes down to an old uh, artificial intelligence conceptualization, and that is that at some level, we're all folk psychologists. In other words, the human brain is designed to sort of anticipate behavior in other people, predict their social behavior, and uh, you know, know what they're going to do. That's an adaptive feature of the human brain. So when you have that innate capacity, it's easy to think, well, uh, I can do what a psychiatrist does. Mm-hmm. You know, basically, what do psychiatrists do? They analyze people. Well, I'm analyzing people every day. Uh, I don't know what they would have over that. Uh, but again, it, it, it gets away from the idea that psychiatrists are really looking at a small percentage of the population with you know, very severe problems. Okay, there's a lot to unpack there. It's very, very helpful. Let me g- uh, get back to the beginning of what you were saying. Um, the the uh, uh, philosophical cr- critique of psychiatry that you, you refer to, um, w- would it be fair to say that it started in the uh, late 50s, early 60s, with people like Foucault and, on the one hand, and other people like uh, 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 Thomas Zaz, on the, you know, on the other hand, Exactly. Yep. Okay. Those are the two main, you know, main people in that movement, I think. Okay. And I, I um, if I recall, I recall reading Saz and him mentioning the fact that uh, up until the 17th century or maybe 18th century, actually maybe even later, I, I can't remember exactly when, but he dates the, 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 um, uh, the emergence of the mental institution. And he said that, you know, prior to that, there were no mental institution. The medical profession treated the sick, meaning the physically sick, and and then at some point, um, according to him, the undesirable behaviors were medicalized, and uh, and people who were behaving in ways that were socially inappropriate or considered socially inappropriate were were labeled as mentally ill and put in uh, institutions. Is the the historical fact correct that mental institutions only emerged, you know, fairly recently, say two hundred years ago or so? Uh- well, I mean, there were uh, variations on uh, mental institutions. For example, even when I was a child in a small town in northern Wisconsin, there were what were known as poor houses. And poor houses were where people went who really could not function in society, and the county took care of them, more or less. Mm-hmm. You know, and, uh, and in fact, uh, when I uh, ran a uh, community mental health center up in northern Wisconsin back in the 1980s, we still had a major... Uh, what I would refer to as sort of a poor house that was really a combined uh, tuberculosis uh, sanatorium and a sanatorium for the mentally ill from that county. And uh, only with the community psychiatry movement where people eventually moved out of that setting. So I think you're right. I think uh, people with severe mental illnesses are always kind of segregated from the rest of society. You know, I think the, the best evidence for that, of course, are the uh, German uh, sanatoriums you know, in the uh, 19th century. Uh, But I think uh, it also, you know, doesn't encompass the fact that the psychiatrists working in those settings at the time were all basically uh, biological psychiatrists like Kreplin, uh, Binswanger, uh, Alzheimer, you know, they uh, were treating people in those settings. And the other uh, dimension there, of course, was humane care. Like, for example, Ludwig Binswanger, Ben Swanger had, you know, 200 plus patients in his uh, asylum and, uh, he would round on those people every week and he got to know those people and their families every week. And, you know, Kreplin's main observation, of course, was that people who were sent to asylums, a certain number of them recovered spontaneously because, of course, there were no treatments back then. 
and they went back to their families and their hometowns. You know, so uh, even though people with abnormal social behavior are aggregated into different uh, institutions, uh, that doesn't preclude the fact that uh, most of them were severely mentally ill. Mm-hmm. And in fact, if you read Shorter's book on the history of psychiatry, Shorter pointed out that a significant number of those folks ended up dying at home because their families couldn't care for them. Right, right. You know? And even, uh, even in uh, Boston, I think uh, early McLean Hospital literature said that the, uh, the fatality rate of uh, delirious mania uh, back in those days, late 1800s, was almost 80%. You know, with people routinely dying of congestive heart failure because they were agitated and uh, could not calm down and they were awake 24-7, you know. And the, that fatality rate from delirious mania has gone from 80% in the late 1800s currently to about zero, you know, with appropriate medical treatment. That's a good point. Um, but let me uh, um, play the devil's advocate, if you will, and, and sure. uh, sort of see it again from the... Uh, uh, the anti-psychiatric uh, perspective um, is part of the um, um, uh, the claim that they make is that you know uh, fundamentally there's nothing clearly objective or, or if you want to articulate exactly what a mental illness illness is it's it always involves some kind of subjective judgments as to whether the behavior is deviant or not, and uh, um, is is that one of the issues as, as well, to why why you don't have an anti-orthopedic uh, uh, you know movement, but you have a nice anti-psychiatric movement? Uh, I don't think so because you know some of these conditions are so valid that uh, you know the subjective assessment is the equivalent to uh, you know a physical exam, like for example mania with psychosis in a hospital. You know, that's such an abrupt, observable behavioral change. It is essentially the equivalent of a physical exam. Uh, the same thing is true with uh, people who are hallucinating, people with psychosis. Uh, and you can uh, you document longitudinally that it's sort of an ABAB experiment. In other words, the goal for most psychiatrists is get to, to get people back to their baseline level of functioning. You know, and when they come out of these episodes of psychosis and depression, they can look back on those retrospectively and say, yeah, I really wasn't myself. Uh, I don't know what happened to me. I'm glad I'm back to the person I am today. You know, right? What What about the? Um, um, but but still, I mean, there's um, an expectation, at least in 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 the medicine that deals with the physical body. Um, you know, more and more we rely on uh, quantitation and and test quantitative test of abnormalities. And I, mm-hmm. I, I actually, I think it's, we've gone way overboard on that, uh, in that respect. But nevertheless, in the, with the physical body, you can, you know, measure things and you're, you can, you can um, quantify them and so forth in a way that doesn't seem to be the case in psychiatry for a lot of psychiatric illnesses, where you, you sort of have to make, if, if you, you know, look at the diagnostic criteria, there's always, you know, it's, too much of this or too much of that, or, or maybe it seems like it's a circular definition where you say, uh, you know, it's a behavior that impairs functioning. Well, how do you define impaired functioning? It seems to be pushing back the problem uh, one step out and that sort of thing. Uh, that's true, you know, without a doubt. Uh, you know, uh, I think, uh, and you mentioned, uh, you know, some psychiatric conditions, like for example, uh, sleep disorders have, uh, they're in the DSM, and of course, 
many psychiatrists are sleep uh, psychiatrists these days, uh, and they have sleep EEG, you know, quantitative markers of uh, of sleep. Uh, and uh, organic conditions are in the DSM, and uh, there's a whole list of neurocognitive disorders with, uh, you know, uh, functional uh, imaging uh, markers, et cetera. And in my particular field, addiction psychiatry, you know, there are uh, 10 addictive compounds and 127 conditions due to those addictive compounds that are cataloged in the DSM, where the uh, addictive compound is really the uh, etiology of those specific disorders. And you can make the observation that when those compounds are taken away, the condition goes away. You know, uh, you know, so there is that biological basis and you're right, the rest is mostly theoretical. You know, since, you know, when I was a resident, I was in a, uh, a research fellow in a diagnostic unit. Back in those days, we were interested in, immuno uh, in endocrinology, you know, psychoendocrinology. And, uh, you know, we could document 24-hour uh, variations in cortisol levels. We could document uh, ACT, uh, ACTH response and uh, CRH response in people who are depressed and non-depressed mm -hmm. and document all those findings. But, you know, none of them have practical day-to-day -day applicability, you know, so they're mostly still, you know, research uh, techniques. And the same thing is true of uh, modern genetics today. You know, if you read the uh, GWAS studies, uh, you know, you will see, uh, all sorts of correlations, low-level correlations with uh, different specific genes and psychiatric conditions, uh, as well as convergence between a number of conditions and uh, genetics. But again, nothing practical that we can use yet. Okay. Um, uh, another um, uh, claim, I guess, that, uh, that could be made uh, in favor of the uh, uh, anti-psychiatry movement, um, you touched on uh, the question of addiction. Mm -hmm. uh, the fact that, you know, uh, it seems that certain behaviors uh, over the decades, you know, the last few decades, you know, I mean, there's a, a switch between behaviors that were considered pathological and are now considered normal and vice versa. And does that, uh, how do you deal with that or how do you respond to that? You know, so people will say, look, you know, homosexuality was considered deviant, you know, 30, 40 years ago. Uh, now it no longer is. Um, on the other hand, alcoholism or, you know, I don't know, some other addiction, you know, would, would have been considered um, not worthy of being counted as a medical diagnosis, but now mm. it's treated as a medical disorder. And, and so how do you respond to that? The, the, the claim that there may be some arbitrariness and, and it may be that the field is maybe responding to social pressures as opposed to having sort of a a realist, uh, an objective uh, hold on what's going on in, in, uh, in reality? Well, you know, with regard to homosexuality, uh, Bob Spitzer actually uh, was the guy writing the criteria back in those days. And what he did was uh, go out and look at the evidence at a uh, uh, APA meeting where there was a separate meeting of gay psychiatrists. And uh, he was involved with advocates at the time from the gay movement. And, uh, you know, decades before anyone else, he decided to drop that from the diagnostic manual. So I think that's really in the spirit of the DSM. The DSM is, you know, really a manual that's there for clinicians and researchers. And it's supposed to be modifiable. It's supposed to be a living document, even the DSM-5. Um, and uh, psychiatry was really decades early getting rid of that as a diagnostic criteria relative to the rest of society. So that would be my argument that societal pressure didn't create a cause for change 
the change uh, actually annotated social pressure by at least 20 or 30 years. Okay. Uh, uh, but then, I mean, are you, uh, are you taking the position that really psychiatry is on par with orthopedic surgery or cardiology or whatnot in terms of its, uh, its um, uh, cogency or its ability to, to sort of point out what is, you know, clearly abnormal from what is normal and that sort of thing. I mean, not, not that cardiology necessarily does it perfectly. I mean, I, I complain a lot about medicalization of, uh, you know, things like hypertension and high cholesterol and whatnot, you know, risk factors yeah, that right. turn into diseases. But, um, but would you say that there's, I mean, is psychiatry, I mean, essentially has, you know, can hold its, its own uh, among the, the medical disciplines um, or is there something that really is sort of inherently uh, more subjective or more unstable in that regard? Uh, I think what's uh, inherently, uh, you know, different about psychiatry is we have much fewer resources. You know, like, for example, I worked for 22 years in an acute care hospital, and we were kind of an integral part of that hospital because, of course, all the medical surgical teams wanted us to deal with psychiatric problems and transfer psychiatric patients to our inpatient units uh, as soon as possible. And uh, the emergency part department was chronically backed up with people with psychiatric disorders because of the bed rationing situation. Uh, you know, so uh, I actually had specialists come up to me in those days. Uh, I won't say who particularly, but uh, you know, it was well known that uh, just the billing and coding of psychiatry was not enough to support our operation. So in a multidisciplinary clinic, the other disciplines had to share some of their revenue with us just to keep the doors open. Mm -hmm. And of course, they were all aware of that. You know, I had a specialist come up to me and say, well, you know, uh, we don't mind transferring some of our revenue to you guys because, you know, you uh, take care of these patients for us. You know, you try to get them out of the emergency department, you try to get them transferred from medical surgical units. Uh, so, you know, we're at a big disadvantage and we have been for 30 years because of that lack of resources. You know, when I think of your discipline, for example, cardiology, you know, there are practically no comprehensive psychiatric clinics where you can go and get an assessment and get the full continuum of care. You know, I would say, let's say TMS or ECT or ketamine infusions would be the equivalent to high-end cardiology. There's no place where that, there are very few places where that happens in the country. You know, and it comes down to the fact that uh, psychiatry uh, does not get the same level of resources as every other discipline. But but is that um, you know I mean what's what's the chicken and what's the egg in that? I mean because because the, the the critics would say psychiatry does not deserve you know precisely because it hasn't demonstrated itself to be you know to objectively make you know, huge difference. Now you pointed out some, you know, decrease in mortality and in, in certain psychiatric conditions and, and I'm huge decrease I, in right. So, so I don't, I don't want to nabash, but, um, I remember reading Zaz, for example, and would say, listen, uh, schizophrenia, there's absolutely no objective test to diagnose it. I think he opened the door to the fact, you know, uh, to the fact that it might indeed be an objective disorder, but he says, once we come up with a physical means or, or, you know, some kind of physical test to tell us precisely who's schizophrenic and who's not, then schizophrenia will become um, in the realm of neurology, right? And, and, uh, and, uh, and become a physical disorder just like other physical disorders. Uh, 
except neurologists will never take care of schizophrenic patients. And why they is that? No, they have no interest in taking care of schizophrenic patients. Nobody does. The only people interested in taking care of them are psychiatrists. Yeah, but why is that? So what, what makes the difference between a neurologist who's willing to take care of somebody with a seizure disorder that has a lot of behavioral aspects to it and and not... Well, possibly. I mean, right. uh, I was a big referral source for people who had PNES, you know, psychogenic uh, epilepsy. You know, they certainly yeah. didn't want to take care of those folks. And, uh, you know, it's well known that you know, it's, it's a hard job to catch a seizure in a person who has so-called pseudo seizures. And yet they were referred my way, you know. Right. Well, so well, that brings up the, the, the question of, um, you know, the mind-body problem. Now, in medical school, that was never really addressed head-on that I recall, right? We, we never had any kind of formal um, discussion or conversation about the difficulty between, I mean, that remains. I mean, I'm not sure. I'm not saying that I, I have a solution to that or so, but, but it was sort of. It's a difficult problem that was sort of shoved aside. And, and in psychiatry, I imagine there are some who are. Um, I mean, the division in psychiatry must mirror the divisions that are present in philosophy about the nature of the mind. Uh, you know, whether people have free will or free agency, whether we're just you know, the mind is just an epiphenomenon. I mean, those would be sort of germane to to the discipline of psychiatry. And, but psychiatry doesn't say that it's whole, you know, it doesn't define exactly what it believes, at least not in any unified way. Um, are there different, uh, so so I, I suspect, that, I mean, that, that might be one reason to also be a little bit uh, skeptical of the feel of psychiatry, if it's not forthright into saying, Look, we are physicalists. We think all of this is, at the end of the day, chemical disturbances or dysregulation or whatnot. Or vice versa, the you know, psychiatry could say, look, we think the mind, you know, we, we believe in free agency. We believe that people can make choices, that those choices may be impaired under certain conditions, and we can identify those conditions and so forth. Um, am I ignorant about how psychiatry approaches this, this question of the, the mind-body problem? Is it... Is, that, is there more of a consensus than I think there is? Uh, I think it's totally ignored, you know, and uh, the, the, the way I look at it is uh, human consciousness. You know, uh, that's an area where psychiatry should be more involved in. There are a few, there have been some textbooks written by psychiatrists on human consciousness, but I think that's what it comes down to. You know, mm -hmm. I think uh, uh, Tonini, who is a, a psychiatrist at the University of Wisconsin, Madison, as a text on uh, the neurological basis of consciousness. And uh, I think you could say he was a physical physicalist. Uh, you know, I'm a physicalist. You know, some people like to use the word reductionist in kind of a pejorative way. Uh, but, you know, to me, it all comes down to neurological substrate, you know. Uh, not that you can completely explain everything from neurological substrate, but you have to know it at the baseline, you know. Right. Uh, and, uh, I think most psychiatrists will agree with that, uh, even though we don't know how a unique conscious state is generated from that physical sub substrate. Um, that's a good point, but then the, isn't the danger at, at this point that you end up, which is again another charge made against psychiatry, that most behaviors have been medicalized? You know, I mean, now you have the proliferation of the use of antidepressants in general practice for any kind of 
you know, sadness or transient uh, um, mood problem or whatnot. Uh, is is that in response to this physicalism or this this idea that you know at the end of the day it's all neurons and and synapses and 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 so forth and, and neurotransmitters? I think that I think that's an inappropriate response. And what I would see that as a response to is managed care. You know, the example I would use is the state of Minnesota. Five years ago, the state of Minnesota said every primary care clinic in the state will give people a PHQ-9 and a GAD-7. And uh, we will use that as sort of the uh, surrogate criteria for depression. Those are que questionnaires just for the audience. Those are questionnaires. Right. PHQ-9 uh, is a standard. What the PHQ-9 is, it, it looks at the DSM criteria, puts them in nine criteria, and has people check off the frequency that they have those symptoms. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, if you have a certain score on the PHQ-9, primary care clinics uh, basically say, well, you're depressed, I'm giving you an antidepressant. So what was initiated as a quality measure by the state of Minnesota really causes uh, prolifer pro proliferation of antidepressant prescribing because every primary care clinic now knows that anybody with a diagnosis of depression has to take this test. And if they have a certain score, they're going to get docked on their quality measures if they're not treated with antidepressants or treated somehow. And the only way that it's as practical for primary care physicians to treat people is with antidepressants. But don't you think that people do feel a little bit better on antidepressants? I mean, uh, otherwise, uh, no. the practice would... Not, so, not okay. unless they have something that's, that's treatable. You know, for example, I see plenty of people in my setting now, I'm, I'm, I'm practicing at an addiction, residential addiction treatment center. Mm -hmm. So I'm sort of a tertiary uh, consultant. So I see hundreds of people who come in to see me and I have to ask them why we started on this antidepressant. And the commonest reasons are, well, I was going through a divorce. You know, I was having problems with my boss. Uh, uh, somebody died in my family and I really missed them. Three, three reasons why you should not be taking an antidepressant. Right. And I have no problem telling them that and taking them off the antidepressant. Right. You know, so I agree with you. There's a, a mass proliferation of unnecessary antidepressant prescribing, but it has nothing to do with psychiatric theory. It has to do with, you know, strange ideas about how we can replace psychiatrists with checklists. So um, in your ideal world, let's say managed care was uh, out of the picture. You know, there was more freedom to practice. Mm -hmm. uh, how, uh, what would it look like? Um, what, um, um, uh, how would it be organized and what would be the relationship between psychiatry and the other uh, uh, medical disciplines uh, in a way that it's not right now or in a way that it could be improved? Well, I, I think the ideal place for any psychiatrist to practice is in a multidisciplinary clinic. You know, I did it for over 20 years, uh, got to know uh, consultants very well, and uh, you know, I think it was very effective for treating medical problems associated with severe psychiatric problems, kind of a neglected area in the outpatient setting. The, the, the question is, you know, what controls the flow of people to psychiatrists? Psychiatrists don't have to see everybody. So there should be a triage system in place where people with mild depression, mild anxiety, mild sleep problems are seeing therapists or social workers or psychologists, and they're being treated with psychotherapy and only people with really severe problems who need immediate inpatient care or who, you know, uh, go through that triage system should move on to see psychiatrists. You know, but that's not the way it is now. Now, you know, in a managed care system, 
someone's dissatisfied with their treatment of anxiety or depression, they go to the emergency department, you know, and suddenly the system starts to back up because in the emergency department, you have a large population of chronically mentally ill people who are just sort of rotating in and out in a steady state between jail, shelters, inpatient units, because mm -hmm. they're never adequately stabilized. And now you have people coming in from outpatient clinics who should have been treated on an outpatient basis. And uh, we have a major backup in the emergency department. Right. Um, but so I, I'm trying to see if, if that's not also, um, you know, uh, a, a, um, a charge that could be made by the uh, anti-psychiatry, uh, you know, movement to say, listen, well, we're no longer coercing people into going into institutions, but nevertheless, we're still sort of uh, corralling them into these, whether it's managed care, you know, it used to be, you know, maybe the, the, the state was institutionalizing people and putting them, you know, against their will in mental institutions. Now it's no longer the, the case, but it's, it's a different form of control over the masses and, and sort of corralling them in ways that are unhealthy. And, and, and it may not be psychiatry, you know, the field of psychiatry itself directly, but it's one way or another a version of psychiatric, 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 <laughs> sorry, psychiatric care that is now maybe carried out by primary care physicians or maybe by ER physicians, you know, who are dispensing medications that maybe they shouldn't be dispensing to begin with. Uh, and, and that the, the distinction are blurred, but it's still essentially a way of uh, exerting control on, on a population. Except nobody wants them, you know, what, I don't know, understand what the control is. They're sitting stranded in the emergency department because nobody wants to treat them. Yeah, yeah, I see that. Nobody yeah. wants to take them in a state hospital. You know, I calculated the state hospital beds for the state of Minnesota. It's three per 100,000 people in the state of Minnesota. You know, an ideal number would probably be 25 to 50. And uh, for 30 years, we've been trying to get an expansion of, of that bed capacity. And they keep telling us, well, there's no way that's going to happen, you know. Uh, so, you know, it's a question of, you know, where you're imprisoned, you know, if you want to put this all on psychiatry, I'd put it on managed care currently, but, you know, are you really imprisoned in a psychiatric hospital getting better or are you imprisoned staying in the emergency department for up to a week before somebody transfers you to a hospital 300 miles away? You know, it right. seems like that's the only uh, massive, that's the only big infringement on the rights of psychiatric patients today is the managed care system and the government, both the state and local and federal governments. No, I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not controlling uh, in, that, in, in the sense, um, you know, the way you're saying it, but it's, um, it, uh, it, it may be, I mean, there, there's, nevertheless, there seems to be a large, I mean, I go back to what, the point I was making just a little bit earlier, uh, the sense among that seems to be common, and I think you wrote about this. I mean, you, you sort of uh, disputing the idea that um, that the the psychiatric field has um, um, uh, promoted the idea that uh, a lot of unhappiness has to do with quote unquote chemical imbalance and so forth and and uh, and whatnot. And if I recall, you were saying that that's not true. That if you read the medical texts. You know, the, nowhere is the, the phrase chemical imbalance in any of the exactly. psychiatric texts. Exactly. In fact, um, I posted a commercial from the year 2002 where the term chemical imbalance is used. There's a video on my blog about that. 
it's a Paxil commercial, and they use the term chemical imbalance. Right, right. But the so, textbooks, the textbooks do not use the term chemical imbalance. No. But don't they? Don't the textbooks use? I mean, indirectly, they may not use the phrase uh, specifically. But don't wouldn't they say that a mechanism of depression is going to be, you know, a dysregulation of the serotonin system, or or you know, what have you, something of that, some language to that effect. Well, I mean, at some level, you have to talk about signaling or something to that effect. You're right. So if you think about the serotonergic system, very complex, you know, and uh, serotonergic signaling is very complex. Uh, and that's the point you have to get across. But from a political standpoint, you'll have people out there saying serotonin is totally irrelevant to depression and psychiatric disorders. Even though if you look at the number of uh, papers written about serotonin, they continue to increase over time, you know. Right. So you can handle uh, molecular biology and, and, uh, and biochemistry politically, yes or no, or you can have a more nuanced approach to it and say, yes, serotonin signaling is very complex. And that's why one out of seven people taking an SSRI can't tolerate it. Whereas, you know, maybe three out of seven uh, that respond to it pretty well. Right. You know, which, which uh, brings up my, uh, my point of view by psychiatry um, is that... Um, so I'm, I, I, uh, I don't take the position of a Thomas Sass, for example. I mean, I do think that psychiatric illnesses are real. Uh, they're not just, you know, constructed for the convenience of, of the majority and whatnot. Um, but on the other hand, I, I think that the, the uh, psychiatry has still a long ways to go in terms of um, articulating more precisely uh, what these illnesses are and, and how... Um, how they relate, you know, how the mind and body relate and so forth. Um, so that's the critique of psychiatry as a field. But individual psychiatrists may be very, very good and, and could sort of uh, have an approach to psychiatric care that is excellent on the basis of experience, intelligence, intuition, and so forth, and be able to do a lot of good for many psychiatric patients or patients who suffer from, from mental illness. Um, but at the same time, other, on paper, equally qualified psychiatrists may at the same time go overboard one way or another, either in, you know, over-medicalizing or, you know, or not, or, you know, that sort of thing. I mean, there's, there's room for a lot of um, uh, mishaps, perhaps. Well, I mean, that's true anywhere. Um yeah. I mean, look at the, the medication psychiatrists prescribe. You know, uh, the antipsychiatrist. One of the antipsychiatrists' main arguments is that these are dangerous medications. And of course, I would say dangerous compared to what? You know, right. are they dangerous compared to antiarrhythmics? You know, antiarrhythmics that should be started only in a hospital, but somebody's starting them on an outpatient basis who's not qualified to give them. You know. Uh, those are the kinds of arguments I think that come up with that. No, correct. But I think they, they may be dangerous, not so much um, uh, on, on physical terms, but maybe dangerous in the sense that, I mean, of all the medical specialties, psychiatry is the one that deals most directly with a person's sense of integrity, right? I mean, the, the patient's sense of, of, of self and who they are and, and, and so forth, right? In a way that an orthopedic surgeon uh, is not. And so... Well, it is a more personal relationship. Correct, right? correct, mm -hmm. correct. Which is, you know, why I think it's a, it's a very important uh, discipline, and and I think uh, you know psychiatric insights are very important. Um, 
but but that's where um so so tell me i mean are you happy with um with the way the discipline is evolving with the the, the uh, new iterations you you alluded to that the new iterations of uh of the dsm we had on our show um uh, a few months ago we had um uh, dr McHugh from from uh from the hopkins uh, he may be retired now but mm-hmm. um are you familiar with his proposal i mean he's he was a little bit critical of the dsm he said that it's it's a categorization that may have had its utility when it was first uh, promulgate, promulgated because psychiatry was in such a uh, disarray at the time uh, that it was helpful to organize psychiatric um, illnesses in you know in a certain fashion but that the organization of the DSM is doesn't take into account you know uh, causes or the nature of psychiatric illnesses and it may be you know it will lump things like natural bereavement with major depression into the same category where in fact these should be considered separately as, as you alluded to now and and he has his own proposal he says that you know now we're in the you know in the um uh, held captive by the bureaucracy uh that has latched on to the dsm manual and it's, it is very hard to sort of move out of this way of thinking what, what what do you think about the way things are progressing well yeah I think the DSM-5 wasn't advanced because it uh, simplified the number of diagnoses. For example, we had all these subtypes of schizophrenia that were irrelevant in the DSM-4, and now we have you know, a more relevant category. Uh, the total number of diagnoses is much less than it used to be. Uh, the, uh, the layout of the manual is better, uh, but uh, I agree that uh, the field has to move forward from here, and that's the you know, the main move is the RDOC through uh, National Institute of Mental Health, research diagnostic criteria uh, proposed by initially Thomas Insel. Uh, however, when I look at the RDOC criteria, I think they're making some of the same mistakes. Like, for example, they will look for biological markers, but then they will also have a series of checklists, you know, like the PHQ-9, like the GAD-7. And I think we have to move away from that entirely. We have to move away from that to strictly biomedical markers at some point. And I think that's where the hope of the field uh, exists, actually. Okay. Well, thinking about, uh, I mean, talking about um, where the field is going and latest developments, you, you had a very uh, interesting article uh, on your blog, I think maybe from a couple of years ago, about this trend to using psychedelics in right. in uh, in therapy. Uh, what are your thoughts? Can you tell tell me your thoughts on that? And, and why do you think that's, um, I think you're critical of it, and, and why do you think it's a bad idea? Yeah, I think it's, uh, well, like many things, it's being promoted in the press uh, a lot more than uh, the evidence is out there. Uh, there's very little evidence that uh, this is a useful way to go. The evidence is mostly anecdotal. Uh, as an example, I work with uh, a psychiatrist. I worked with a psychiatrist who had the most ketamine patients treated in the state of Minnesota. And he pointed out to me that uh, just uh, anecdotally, some of those people seem to benefit from uh a psychotherapeutic aspect for ketamine, even though they were getting it for uh, depression. In other words, they had traumatic events from the past that they could not get any distance between using psychotherapy, but after they got ketamine infusions, uh, they seem to be able to get that distance and move on from that. You know, now whether that's generalizable and that's going to happen in uh, broad uh, psychedelic uh, facilitated psychotherapy sessions is kind of unknown, but you know, in my blog, I mentioned that, you know, there were thousands of people treated with LSD psychotherapy back in the 80s. Uh, and I think I alluded to the uh, Dutch study, 
where there were 400 people treated with uh, LSD who had significant complications from LSD that wasn't picked up, you know, recently. Uh, so uh, I don't think LSD is going to be quite as innocuous as it's portrayed in the press. Uh, and whether it works therapeutically, I think, is uh, is kind of speculation at this point. So, but but you think because I think there are clinical trials ongoing. Yes. To uh -huh. test these things, and you think that those will provide the answer that is needed? Well, at least at the level we have for ketamine, which is still controversial, I think. You know, even though we have a an FDA approved uh, preparation of ketamine, intranasal ketamine, uh, many people like me are still skeptical of it, based on the fact that the the approval trials were very, showed very weak weak effects. And uh, as an addiction psychiatrist, I'm concerned about you know ketamine being available on the street and being diverted, you know, even though it's supposed to be used uh, only by direct physician supervision in the physician's office, you know. Uh, so how, how this intranasal ketamine plays out, I think is gonna be a big part of uh, whether this is a, you know, a, an improvement in the field or not. Right. Very good, uh, George. Uh, thank you very much for this conversation. Um, it, it's, um... Uh, as I said, I mean, I, I, th I think it's it's a fascinating, you know, psychiatry is fascinating. It holds a special place in medicine, a, a very important place. And so I I, uh, I don't mean to, you know, maybe I sounded a little bit uh, uh, too skeptical. I, I don't mean to. I'm not an anti-psychiatrist. Uh, <laughs> but I I, uh, I appreciate the field, but I think the, the, the challenges are there. And, uh, and I think the more we talk about them and, um, and, and the more we, you know, perhaps point to uh the fundamental questions or, or the lack of of answer and the lack of um um uh, tackling sort of fundamental questions about uh, the nature of uh, of um, the mind the free agency of human beings uh, you know what is human nature is, is there such a thing beyond what the molecules are doing and um and how do we define health, you know, in general, mental health in particular, and so forth? Mm -hmm. um, I, I think we're going to continue to have uh, some problems, not just in psychiatry, just in medicine in general. But I, um, I really appreciate your insights. I want to invite uh, all the listeners to go to your blog. Uh, you're, you're a prolific writer. You write uh, on a wide variety of topics, most of them related to psychiatry. Uh, one way or another, can you tell us the uh, URL and um, uh, of your blog, and then and then where to follow you on Twitter? Sure, you can uh, just Google "real psychiatry" and uh, it'll pop right up. Okay. And, and on, uh, go ahead. And on Twitter, uh, I think you can just uh, type my name in, and it'll pop up there. Okay, I'll put those links on the show notes uh, anyway. But but I think you're right. Uh, if you Google uh, George Dawson and uh, "real psychiatry," things will pop up. Okay. Anything else uh, before we uh, uh, we close, uh, George? Uh, I don't think so. I appreciate the uh, the uh, opportunity to try to answer some of these tough questions because I think uh, one of the goals of my blog is to help uh, other psychiatrists be ready to answer these questions as well. Okay. Very good. Thanks for joining me. Have a good weekend. Okay. You too. Thanks for listening to the Akkad and Coca Report. Subscribe for free on iTunes or Stitcher at akkadandcoca.com, where you'll find detailed show notes, our blog, and more. akkadandcoca.com.